I am laughably limited. And you are too, if you're willing to admit it. Um, so I'll go first and share a bit of how I'm limited with just one example, tiredness. Uh, how many of you right now, you are tired? <laughs> okay, it's like the whole room, yeah. Um, I, I have found, particularly in the last number of years, there's just been a number of days, they kind of pop up out of nowhere, that I just I wake up tired or I hit some point in the day and I just feel abundantly tired, sort of without explanation. And, and it's, it's deeply disturbing to me because I have physically I have no control over jumping into the tiredness and then also no control of when, it, when it's over. And, and maybe you can relate, you know, in, in tiredness. I, I've had this, this question uh, for like the last year of why am I so tired? It actually was a, with a growth plan goal for me, figure out why I'm so exhausted. And so I, I, I read a bunch of books and I, I brainstormed things and tried to figure out, you know, why is it that I'm so tired? And I came with, with at least some you know, feasible answers. Uh, you know, I, I have three kids. Uh, that'll make you tired. That's guaranteed right there. Uh, they're all young. Um, my, my beautiful wife, Melissa, is pregnant with our fourth child. And so she is tired. And, and therefore, for me to care for her in this tiredness, then I kind of take on some of that tiredness by doing more things. So that's perhaps a reason why I'm tired. Um, the Lord has blessed me with, with really awesome ministry. I primarily work at Shippensburg University. God has blessed it abundantly. So there's, there's always more things to do than what I'm capable of. So that perhaps is why I'm tired. Um, I also am getting into midlife. Uh, I'm, I'm closer to 40 than I am away from 40. Uh, so I'm, you know, that, that could be a reason why I'm tired. Uh, some mornings I'll wake up and I, I look at what's on my schedule. And I'm like, I just don't know how I'm going to do today. You know, the, the energy that it's going to require is much more than the energy that I have available. Um, and so often I'm, I'm, you know, praying and just, just God help me. You know, driving to campus, like, God, please, you get, I'm going to show up. I'm going to drive there. But, like, you got to show up, too, to give me the energy that I need for outreach tables or for, you know, one-on-ones or for speaking. Um, just, just feeling more weak than I have probably ever, ever else in my life. Um, I'm often exhausted and overwhelmed by my, my email inbox, how many unread emails I have. And so most days I don't do it all. And then I feel such guilt and shame over the tasks that I have left unfinished, the people that I haven't met with, the emails that I haven't replied to. And in the words of Madeline Doris, she says, I didn't do the thing today. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you feel tired, you feel limited, you feel exhausted. Um, Maybe even much more than me. Maybe you are struggling with a chronic illness. Maybe you have significant mental health. Maybe you have an inhuman class load and, and plus two part-time jobs. And, and there is good reason for why you are tired. Uh, like I said, my, my growth plan goal is to figure out why I'm tired. And I feel like overall that goal wasn't really su- successful. I didn't, I didn't figure out why in the sense of now I can fix it. Um, and so my new growth plan goal right now is accept my weak limits and praise God for his grace. It's almost a sense in which I've gone through the five stages of grief of like, I deny that I have limits. Now I'm angry that I have limits. And now I'm bargaining. If I do this and do that and manage my energy, can I like, you know, figure out a way to not have limits anymore? And then I get depressed with my limits. Oh, it's never going to change. And now I've kind of tried to come to this place of acceptance. I am limited. I just, I am. And now how can I, how can I lean into grace in a more deep way? That's what I want to talk about with y'all today. So if you're like, I'm not weak, I'm not limited, then I recommend go to a different breakout. This won't be relevant for you. But if you feel limited, limited, and if you feel weak, then this is definitely the place to be because I have some really good news for you from the scriptures. I want to encourage you 
this afternoon. Um, so please flip to page 40 and 41 um, in your packets. That's where we're going to be. First thing I want to do, point one, is just shine a light on our very real limits and weakness. And then I want to show how achievement-oriented culture denies these limits. And then I want to bask in the glorious good news of the gospel of grace and then end with some encouraging reminders as we live with these limits. Uh, The scripture is on page 40. Uh, We're referencing that uh, from time to time, and then those points are there, uh, page 41. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in and talk about our hilarious human limits and weakness. Father God, we pause, even right now, just recognizing our limits, that uh, we, we may be tired and even have difficulty paying attention right now. We might be uh, thinking about something else, something that's, that's really stressful that's on our mind, some situation outside of this room uh, or some, some way that we're feeling mentally or emotionally or physically, um, and, and we're limited even how much we can pay attention to one thing at the same time or multiple things. Um, so God, please, would you meet us here? Would you help us to pay attention to your word? Would you help me in my limitedness to be able to speak in a way that makes sense and is helpful? And Lord, would you bear good fruit here through our time uh, for your glory and for our good? We need it, God. Please show us, display to us grace in a way that just sounds so good and is nourishing to our souls. So we pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. So first, I want to examine how we are weak and limited in two ways. First, as good created beings, and then also as bad sinful beings. So first, good created beings. We'll look at Genesis 1, 26 um, to see what God says, even before the fall into sin. So it's on your, on your packets, page 40 there. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Um, Skip down to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So what we learn on basically the first page of the Bible is that God is the creator and we are the creation. And by virtue of that key distinction, we have limits. Because God as the creator is unlimited, but we as the creature are made with limits. And God declares that in verse 31 as very good. Having limits is not sinful. It's a key point. It's like, if you get anything from this, that that one's just going to revolutionize your life. Having limits is not sinful. It's actually a divine design feature. God is the creator, unlimited, and we are the creation with limits. And God says that is very good. Now, as good created beings, here's a few examples of our limits. This is even before sin comes into the world in the next, you know, next few chapters. We have bodily limits. So we have a body, and having a body means you have limits. We need to eat food. We need to have sleep. Um, but do you, maybe in, in the fallen world, this may be a theological debate, but we have illness you know, we can break and bleed. We have energy only for the day, and then we need to recharge. But you can only be at one place at a time. You cannot be here at Fall Conference this weekend and home visiting your family this weekend and back on campus studying for that test on Monday this weekend. You can only be in one place, and here you are. You can only be in this, this breakout, the other, the other ones you can't be at. That's a limit. That's a significant limit, very significant. Man, there also are mental limits. Here's a funny one. Can you remember exactly 
all 45 minutes of your breakout session that you went to this morning? <laughs> that was only a few hours ago. Now, can you remember the breakout sessions you went to last year at Fall Conference? Ooh. How about all the classes you took last semester? Do you remember them all? Would you be, how would you do on the test if you took it again? Yikes. Please no. <laughs> We're slow to learn. We can't just download information in our brain via Wi-Fi like the Matrix, you know, Neo, I know Kung Fu. Can't do that. You can really only think and do one thing at a time. Multitasking is a myth. I often say to my, to my kids, sort of in love, but a little bit of frustration, I'm like, guys, how many things can daddy do? And they know the answer, one. So I can only do one thing at a time. I'm sorry, I can't make five breakfasts at the same time. Unless it's all the same thing. I just, you know, Cheerios, everybody gets Cheerios. That, that's one example. But if everybody asks for different things, I'm sorry, I can only do one thing at a time. I love you, but I'm limited. Like I just, you have to pray. Ask God to give you what I can't do. Um, we sometimes forget we've double booked our schedule. Um, we sometimes forget what day it is. You ever done that? You, know, you show up to the wrong class. Um, we need a brain break. So we have mental limits. Body limits, mental limits. We also have relational limits. So there are roughly 450 students here. I think it's about 75 staff. And you just cannot have a meaningful conversation with all of them this weekend. Maybe you want to, but you just can't. Uh, you, you might have 2,000 followers on Instagram, but you can't be that close with that many people. You can't hang out with your grandma as much as she wants. You can't be there for every friend that's going through a hard time. Um, we have relational limits. We also have productive limits. Even in the Garden of Eden, God gave us good work to do, so productivity is godly, but we have limits. You can read all the books on productivity hacks. You can have systems and discipline and hustle, but it really is laughably limiting how much productivity you can get done each day. And, and the, the irony is that the more productive you are, the more work you'll be assigned, either from others or that you'll assign yourself. And so you'll never get done with all the things, no matter how efficient you are. So we have bodily, mental, relational, and productive limits. And that's as good created beings, even before our fall into sin. God designed us with those limits. And we could stop this breakout right there. And that message right there, that your limits as a human are not sinful, they're not bad, God declares these limits very good. That right there is such an important and countercultural idea. But sadly, the story doesn't stop there. Uh, we have limits by nature of our goodness as created beings. We also have additional limits because of our sinfulness. And we'll look at least two of those. And I want to show it to you from Scripture first. In Romans 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin." So death is one of our limits. I'll unpack that in a minute. And then Romans 7, 19 through 20 says, this is Paul speaking, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I want to unpack those, those two additional sinful limits, moral limits and mortal limits. So moral limits, we often sin in our selfishness, in our rejection of God, if you do not identify as a Christian, if you do not have the Holy Spirit, then you are unable to put your sin to death. You are stuck in slavery to sin. But even if you are a Christian, you still have indwelling sin. Just read Romans 7 where Paul describes the sin that dwells within me. And you might have dreams and desires to grow to such spiritual heights that you will no longer sin. And oh, please, God, would you give that to me? Help me to fight all sin. Give me affection only for you. And yet, it seems that in this broken world, before Christ's return, there even is a moral limit on Christians. That you and I will keep sinning like Paul, who says, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And I wish it wasn't so. But that's part of our moral limits. 
And then also our mortal limits. Death is the result of sin, as Paul says in Romans 5.12. No matter how many kale smoothies you drink, no matter how many 5Ks you run, no matter how, many, how much clean food you eat without any preservatives at all, you just, you're just out there, you just literally just pull it out of the ground and eat it. You know, <laughs> you and I and everyone you know will die. And we do not talk about that much in our Western secular context, but it is a reality. It's, one, it's an undeniable one. Um, just read the obituaries in the, in the paper. Death is the great equalizer, the great limiter, the final weakness for sinful humans. We age and degrade, and eventually we expire and decay. We have moral and mortal limits. So we have limits as good created beings and then further limits as bad sinful beings. So those are the realities of our hilarious human limits and weakness. I want to turn now to consider a a very surprising and strange reaction to these limits in, in point two, the crushing pride of achievement culture. So achievement culture, just as a definition real quick, Achievement culture is the belief that your value comes from what you can produce. If you want to take notes, that's the thing to write down. Your value comes from what you can produce. That's achievement culture. Your value comes from what you can produce. Another way to say it is that your status comes from your success. Your acceptance comes from what you can accomplish. Your praise comes from your performance. That's achievement culture. So achievement culture ignores or denies everything we just talked about in point one. All the limits, all the weakness, and it's pride for rebellion. It not only seeks to transgress them, like the, the shirt I saw at Target for kids that said, the only limit is myself. And I was like, that might sound good at first when you say that to a kid. Like, oh, you know, don't worry, Jimmy. You know, you're, the only limit is yourself. It's just a brain game, man. You know, get out there and you know, be a football star. But, but, but once Jimmy fails in any way, what's he going to tell himself? My only limit is myself. I'm a failure. It's because of me. Nobody actually can truly help me because the real limit, the real limit is me. And I'm a failure. So achievement culture says you got to overcome those limits. you got to press past them, break those barriers. And achievement culture leads to just utter exhaustion in how it, it demands that we go beyond the real limits that we already have. So let me give you a few examples of achievement culture. It comes out in academics. Just this demand, this pressure. You have to get the A's, the 4.0 GPA. You have to have that, that brilliant, beautiful resume to get the scholarship, get the honors, get the recognition, study harder. In sports, it comes out. You've got to practice more hours. Beat your personal record. You have a personal record? Great. Beat it. Next semester. You have to, to work hard, even beat your other teammates. Press through the pain of injury. Never give up. It comes out in resume and career building. You got to join extracurricular clubs to boost your resume. Do unpaid internships in the hopes that maybe you'll get a job. And if you get that job, man, you better work hours to show and prove that you're the best employee. Keep saying yes to more and more assignments beyond your capacity. Achievement culture comes out from pressure from family and friends that say to you that you need to do more, be better, work harder, skip sleep, push through. You need to make your family proud. Prove the haters wrong. It actually comes out, achievement culture, in the church too. We sometimes can, be, can believe that the more spiritual activity that we do will make God love us more. That we'll be more approved the more spiritual things we do. So you got to speed read the whole Bible. you got to pray two hours a day. you got to make disciples ten a week, please. 
You gotta, gotta make sure you never sin. Don't sin. No, no, that's not what Christians do. Lead your whole sports team to Christ. Go into foreign missions. Become a martyr. You know, achievement culture. Remember, all this achievement culture is based on the belief that your value comes from what you can produce. That's your value. More production, more value. There's, there's two fundamental responses uh, to achievement culture, but neither of them actually are getting at that root belief. So they're kind of leaving that root belief unquestioned. My value comes from what I produce. But there's two main responses that you'll see in culture, and people kind of waffle between the two. And I'm getting this insight from uh, Alan Noble in his fantastic book, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in the Inhuman World. He says the two responses are affirmation and resignation. So affirmation is what you might see often on uh, Instagram, you know, hashtag hustle, hashtag grind, rise and grind, hashtag girl boss, that kind of thing, in, inspo, you know, inspo Instagram. And it's that idea of like, the only limit is yourself. Like, get out there, prove the haters wrong, like, just work hard and you'll be able to achieve your dreams. You know, you believe in yourself. You know, go back, write, write a letter to yourself when you're five years old, be like, you don't even know. Oh, man, just follow your dreams, man. Don't ever change. It's like this, this sort of affirmation, basically believing that that fundamental thing of saying, if I work hard enough, I can achieve everything, and achievement is really where it's at, and that's where I'll have value. It, achieve, uh, affirmation says, that's fundamentally true, and so, and so let's get going. You know, work harder. On the other hand, though, if anything goes wrong with that scenario, if there's any failure on that side, academic failure, sports failure, you get an injury, you know, things don't go well with your girlfriend, she dumps you, like, then you're going to flip over here to resignation where you believe that ultimately this, this promise here, you work hard, you hustle, you'll get, you'll get the grades, you'll get the Ferrari, you'll get the girl, whatever it is, there's a resignation of saying that fundamentally is a lie. Now, you still are believing that that's kind of how the world works, but you just are jaded, you're bitter, you're discontent with that. You realize that it's a sham, but there's no real alternative, so you just resign yourself. And say, I, guess, I guess I'm just a loser, you know? Uh, my only limit is myself. Well, sadly, I'm super limited. And so I just, you know, just going to give up. Uh, maybe you, you, just, you drop out of college. You drop out of the thing. You, you just say, oh, I'm just going to be single forever. You just, whatever it is that you are chasing over here with affirmation, um, then you, you move over here to resignation. And you, you might bounce back and forth between the two. Um, you know, you might, might hang out there for a few weeks, and someone's like, man, this is more fish in the sea. You know, you just got to put yourself out there. You're like, yeah, you're right. And then you go over here, and you remake yourself, and, you know, get a new job or a new, new resume or something or, you know, new whatever. And so we kind of bounce back and forth, but both, neither of these is really, is really questioning that foundational belief that your value comes from your production. Um, now, to be fair, achievement culture isn't only just a mindset thing. Um, the quick fix is not just develop a new mindset, because these pressures are, are very real. It's a very real description of our current world, especially economically, is achievement culture, um, there are real job market pressures that make all of us have to run fast on that treadmill of performance. Um, so in a meta way, there's even a limit to how much we can escape achievement culture itself. Um, I, I want to I finish out this point by, by showing you guys that, that mental model on the bottom of, of point two there to kind of illustrate how all these things connect and how they, they progress. So achievement culture, that belief that your value comes from what you produce, leads to anxiety and pressure. Because it's all on you. And, and what's on you is it's your value. So you better work hard. So that anxiety and pressure moves you into overcommitting and overworking, going past your limits, past what you actually are capable of doing in a sustainable, thriving way. And then, of course, if you're overworking and overcommitting, that inevitably will lead to 
exhaustion, and burnout. Where he just, it, it's just like a, like a car and an engine. Where if you ever looked at the, the one little thingy where it has a little bit of red on the, on the top part, that's the rotations per minute of the engine. If you just slam the gas and it goes all the way up to the red, and you just keep it there, and you just keep it there for minutes, you will break your engine. And it's the same thing with your, with your body, with your mind, with your emotions. If you just slam the gas of life, and you're just living in that spot all the time, you will break, like you will burn out. Because you're not God, and you're not you know, a, a Formula One engine or something. Like you're, you're a human created with good limits that God says is very good. But if you're like, nope, not me, then you're going to break yourself. Hopefully by this point in the breakout, you're convinced of your limits. Maybe you're not, but hopefully you're convinced. Maybe you feel understood and, and validated in that feeling of uh, people don't realize how weak I am. Like this is not working for me. It's too fast. It's too much. Or perhaps you, you feel the hesitancy to really admit um, those limits because in the face of achievement culture, admitting weakness um, doesn't, doesn't get you any good. It gets you condemnation. So, you know, you'll get left behind as everyone else catapults towards success. Perhaps you feel discouraged then by all of this. And that's why I'm really excited to move into point three because I want to tell you guys some really, really good news. And it might be the key that unlocks your willingness to be honest about your weakness. So I want to look now at the glorious, restful gospel of grace. First, let me define grace. Grace is getting goodness that you don't deserve. If you want to write down notes and stuff, that's the definition. Grace is getting goodness that you don't deserve. I love how Tim Castile puts it in, in, in the face of achievement culture. He says, grace means you have value that is given, not earned. Grace means you have value that is given, not earned. It is goodness that you don't deserve. The gospel means Christ dies in your place to forgive you of your sins and gives you relationship with him, reconciliation, eternal life, being heirs according to the promise. He gives all that to you 100% free of charge for your, for your side because he's the one that pays all the price. He does. He lives the totally righteous life, dies the death of an ungodly sinner, which is what you deserved. That's all of grace. It's goodness that we did not deserve. We have value that is given, not earned. So I want to slowly unpack the grace of the gospel by looking at a few different scriptures. The first one is 2 Corinthians 12. So the Apostle Paul is suffering from some kind of weakness. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. It was apparently quite difficult for him. So I want to pick it up there in verse 7. Paul writes, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now, pause right there. Think about that. Paul, Paul comes to God. God, this thorn of the flesh, this weakness, it is so hard. You know I love church planting. You know I love evangelism. You know I love the work you've called me to. Can you please take this away? I'll be more fruitful. I'll be more productive. I'll be able to do more. I'll be able to reach more, more cities. Please take this away. God says, no. He says, okay. And then maybe later, he goes, God, remember that, remember that thorn I was talking about? Yeah, can we talk about that again? Um, you know how I love planting churches? You know how I love preaching the gospel? This thorn in the flesh is really, really hard for me. Uh, I'd be so much more productive, so much more fruitful if you just take this away. And God's like, no. He's like, okay, I trust you. All right. And then a few weeks later, he's like, hey, God. Remember that thing I was just talking to you about twice? <laughs> you know, can, we just, can we just talk about that one again? And then he says, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. 
For, because, this is the reason why, my power is made perfect in weakness. Probably not the line that Paul wanted to hear. My power is made perfect in weakness. That is so countercultural to what we think of today. We think, man, God's power is made perfect in my strength. That's what we think. You know? How am I ever going to make it on the cover of Christianity today with weakness? I got to have power, baby. Yeah. Got to have a thousand people to come to my church and got to have, you know, a million people mobilized to missions or whatever and, you know, billions of dollars and build the biggest church you've ever seen. And, you know, that's, that's what's power and strength is what's going to get the eye of people. But, but it, for whatever reason, God's economy is he says, I want you to be desperate for grace and I want you to be so weak that my power is displayed, that my power is what you're depending on. That's God's economy. And apparently, the end of verse 9 there, Paul just takes that, he swallows that, that becomes part of his life, part of his mind, part of his heart. And so he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. He's like, yes, okay, if that's the way it works, I'm in, I'm going to totally reorient everything about my mindset, and I'm going to, instead of boasting about my strengths, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. You know, you, you would be shocked to read Paul's resume, because it's all going to be weaknesses, you know? Like, what makes you a good pastor for this church? He's like, well, I'm pretty bad at this, and I'm pretty bad at that, I'm pretty weak at this. You know, it's just be a weird resume. He's, he's boasting about his weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. Verse 10, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I I don't think I really know anybody. I I, I have to think about that. Do I know anybody who truly delights in weaknesses? I mean, other than Paul, what he says here, like that is just so countercultural. I delight in weakness. Oh, I'm sick today. Yes. Oh, God's grace is so sufficient. Oh, his power is going to be so perfect in me today. I mean, you know, oh, it's just perfect, you know? you know. I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions. I delight in weaknesses. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Man, this is wild. I mean, if you know somebody that's like this, um, I know like just the fringes. I've actually been doing like these little interviews, trying to just talk to people I know, particularly on the subject staff, um, guy in my church, I've just been trying to do some interviews to, to be like, okay, you have experienced significant, like, chronic illness and weakness and cancer and whatnot. Like, like, give me your wisdom. Like, what is God teaching you? Because I have some weakness, but in terms of what you're experiencing, what you've been through, like, I need your wisdom because if this passage is true, you know, which I believe it is, like, I want to I get a little bit more of this. And I'm not there, um, so I, I want that wisdom. So, you know, side note, I, all this, this breakout here, this is not me, like, as the expert. This is, I'm, I'm teaching myself as, as much as I'm teaching you. Um, I, I need to grow in this a, a good bit. So Paul lands, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So in God's economy, it's all upside down for what we normally think. The admission of weakness is what gets you grace. James 4, 6 says like this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if you admit your weakness, God gives you grace. It's amazing. God is so different than employers, than friends, than family, than professors, than the government. 
when we come to God and we declare our weakness, I need help, God says, you've come to the right place because when people are weak, I give them grace. When people ask for help, I give them the help that they need. So I'll say it again. If you want to take notes, write this down. When we admit weakness to God, he gives grace. When we admit weakness to God, he gives grace. Now, if you don't believe me from 2 Corinthians 12, I want to give you a few other scriptures just to drive the point home. This is all over the Old Testament. We'll only look at a few of them. In Exodus 14, God has brought the the, uh, Israelites out of slavery to the Egyptians, and he has them right up there on a a beautiful beach vacation on the the, the sea, on the Red Sea there. Um, And, uh, you know, maybe they're making sandcastles. But uh, all of a sudden, the the beauty is ruined by the, the Egyptian army coming to slaughter them. So now the, the scene changes, and they, they crowd to Moses. Are you going to, do we not have enough graves in Egypt? Is that, is that the problem? You know, we just, we just ran out of graveyard space that you brought us out here. We're just going to die here. Uh, is that the plan? And, and Moses is like, no, 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 guys, you know, just trust in the Lord, and you'll see that he'll, he'll work salvation. The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And then God does one of the, one of the biggest, you know, referenced miracles in the Old Testament, parts the Red Sea. They go across on dry land. And God swallows up the Egyptian army, those who are trying to seek to, to kill them and re-enslave them. And, and God's people are freed. In their weakness, God rescues them, gives them grace. Fast forward maybe a thousand years or so, um, King Asa calls out to God for help against a million-man army in 2 Chronicles 14. He says, O oh Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this multitude. Oh, Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. And the Lord delivers them and rescues them. Fast forward to the New Testament, Luke 18, 13 to 14. Jesus tells this quick story. A Pharisee comes into the temple, prays, God, thank you that I'm not like those idiots over there. Oh, I just love being a good guy. Thank you for helping me, just making me a good guy. But then verse 13, the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus concludes, as he contrasts these two guys, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever, the one who humbles himself, will be exalted. That's God's economy. You humble yourself, you're weak, you ask for grace, you get it, he exalts you. And then Romans 5, verse 6 says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Actually, I had to look that up one more time because I wasn't quite sure it actually said that. It seems too good to be true. It seems really counterculture. Romans 5, 6 actually does say that. While we, are still, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's amazing. Christ died for weak, ungodly sinners. It's not like you need to achieve some certain amount of, of sort of spiritual righteousness points in order to be eligible to, to apply for salvation, you know, and you, you fill out your paperwork and make sure it's all in order, and then maybe God will, will consider it. The only thing you need for your paperwork is to be weak and to be ungodly. Man, that's good news. It's good news. If you're weak and ungodly, it's good news. Um, and that's me, and that's you. Uh, so it's, it's good news. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And just in case you think Romans 5, 6 is some, some glorious fluke in the scriptures and it's, it's only there once, uh, let me give you three more passages that just unpack this glorious gospel of grace. Romans 4, 4 to 5 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, 
His faith is credited as righteousness. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. And then Romans 11, 6 gives a definition of grace. It says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's grace. Grace is no works, not, not according to you. So the gospel allows us to admit our weakness and to opt out of achievement culture, say that is not true. It is not true that my value comes from what I produce. Grace is true that my value comes from what God gives me just by his goodness, what he declares. And that's such good news that we have this alternative because achievement culture is sort of this polluted air that we're all breathing in it, and it, and it, it, it messes us up because it speaks something that's not true that, that ends up just grinding us into, into exhaustion. And so the gospel is almost like this gas mask that we can put on that filters the air. It allows us to breathe in that clean air filtered by grace to combat the polluted air of achievement culture. See, we are those weak, ungodly sinners. We are those trapped Israelites. We are the powerless Asa. We are the the sinful tax collector. And God gives us grace, not earned, not deserved, but freely given to us because of Jesus. We don't achieve anything. We simply admit our weakness and they were given the grace of the gospel. So to kind of summarize all that in a contrasting mental model, you see at the end of point three there, you have grace instead of the achievement culture. Grace is the foundation. You have value that's given, not earned. That grace, as we believe it and soak in it, and it goes into our bones, it leads to peace. Peace, not anxiety. It leads to joy, not a pressure of you got to do more, but a joy of God has done everything for me. There's no more that I need to do to earn my place. From that peace and joy comes humbly living within God's limits. I don't, need to, I don't need to press against my limits. I don't need to overcome them. I can acknowledge them honestly and humbly. Say, God is unlimited, but I am limited. I'm limited. And then from that place of recognizing our limits, we can both rest and work. We can rest when we need it, and we can work because work is good that God has given us work to do. But work has its own limits. It doesn't need to be everything in life. It doesn't need to be our identity. It doesn't need to be, you know, work all the days of the week and next week and next week and just work, work, work culture. We can work when we work and we can rest when we rest. If you ever read um, Dr. Dr. Seuss's book, uh, The King's Stilts, when he worked, he really worked. And when he played, he really played. It's such a great little book. Uh, you should go read it. Uh, and if, if you have, you know, cousins or little kids or something, read it to the kids. They'll love it. So that's, that's the, the glorious good news of God's grace. I want to end now with encouraging reminders. Encouraging reminders that that help us to see how to live amidst our limits, dependent on God for his grace. Because because of the grace of the gospel, we have access to the storehouse of God's riches and his mercy. And so when we admit weakness, we get help. It's almost like weakness is the key that unlocks the storehouses of his grace, the storehouse of his help. You will not get help if you're strong. But if you're weak, that's the key. Like it's almost, it's almost like if you're like, no, I don't really need anything, then, then you have empty hands. But as soon as you say, I actually need help, then boom, it's like miraculously the key to God's storehouses of help emerges in your hand. That was the, the secret in order to get the help. So I want to remind you of the help and the grace of God. So I have uh, uh, six, six reminders here. So remember, number one, remember God has saved you. Remember, God has saved you. So if you're a Christian, remember the gospel. If you're not a Christian, by the way, 
you got to get in on this, okay? Okay, you want this deal. I guarantee you there's nothing else out there that is like the gospel. You do nothing. You're just ungodly and weak. You're dead in your sins. And God gives you life, gives you righteousness, loves you, rescues you, makes you a new creation in Christ, forgives you, adopts you in his family, commits himself to you for eternity, full joy in his presence. Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy to right hand of pleasures forevermore. Do you want pleasure? Do you want joy? Do you want life? Come to Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, man, you've got to get in on this. If you are a Christian, though, please remember the gospel. Because sometimes if you've been a Christian for more than, I don't know, a week, you forget the gospel. You forget it. You start just being like, oh, i got to do my, do my work, you know. Make God love me. That's not how it works. So remember the gospel. Remember that in your sin, Christ forgives you. When you fail, God's grace abounds in greater supply. We're so prone to forget the gospel. And part of it, I think, I'm not placing a full blame on it, but part of the reason is that we're breathing in the polluted air of achievement culture. That constantly the message we're hearing is your value comes from what you produce. Your value comes from what you produce. And the gospel comes in and says, no, that's not true. Your value comes from God's grace. You don't need to do anything. God did all the work. And, and it's almost a whisper in the midst of just the cacophony, the shouting of achievement culture. And so you have to go to the Bible every day to breathe deep the clean, fresh air of the gospel. Go to good worship songs that preach Jesus to breathe deep the fresh air of the gospel. Go to good books that unpack grace to breathe deep the grace of the gospel. Go to friends and just explicitly say, can you just remind me of the gospel for a minute? And then breathe deep the grace of the gospel. Remember that God has saved you. Second reminder, remember God cares for you. God cares for you. If anybody was at the worry um, session that Brian Parker did, he ended on 1 Peter 5. I want to read it for you again. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Did you catch what 1 Peter 5 is saying? God hears you and God cares for you. He will always pick up the phone and reply to your texts, so to speak. Brian C., if you go to his session on self-care tomorrow morning, he will say, probably if he quotes himself as the same as he did a year ago, we have something far better than self-care. We have a God who cares for us. Oh, it's good. Man, I wrote that down as soon as he said it last year. We have something far better than self-care. We have a God who cares for us. And we see God's care most poignantly in the gospel of Christ dying to save sinners. So pray, pray, pray. Be honest with God about your weakness, your limits, your fears, your anxieties. Ask him for help because he cares for you. You don't have to, you don't have to cajole him into caring. He already cares. That's why he, he graciously invites you. Cast your anxieties on me. I care about you. So remember, God cares for you. Third reminder. Remember, you have permission to rest. You have permission to rest. Now, this might sound crazy or it might sound so basic that it's ridiculous, but let me just unpack how you have permission to rest. Because Christ has earned all your righteousness, because you're standing before God is approved in Christ, you can rest. You don't have to earn your value anymore. You are allowed, this is wild, take notes, write this down. You are allowed to get eight hours of sleep a night. You're allowed to. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, you don't have to pretend that you are an iPhone, that you're always on, never, never power cycling. You know, you can get in bed, you can be at peace, knowing that while you sleep, God is not sleeping, but is still ruling and reigning over the universe. You have permission to sleep. You have permission to rest one day out of seven as a Sabbath to the Lord. See, in Exodus, when, when the Sabbath command was given, it was to the Israelites who had just come out of slavery, where they had no day of rest. The fourth command was given to them on Mount Sinai as a gracious invitation to stop the inhuman schedule of constant work as slaves and instead rest regularly. You have permission to take a weekly Sabbath, almost as a, as a rebellion against achievement culture, that you are declaring in your rest one day out of seven, I am more than what I achieve for six days a week. I have worth and I have value that comes from God giving it to me. And once a week, I choose to, to lean into that, to press into that, to, to sort of incarnate that reality that I am not working because my value comes from not my work, but from what God declares of who I am. And so the Sabbath is a form of resistance. You have permission to have hobbies that are not side hustles, to play sports for fun, not just competition, to do a thing because you enjoy that thing and not just because it looks good in your resume. You have permission to find refreshing, life-giving activities that restore your energy and give you joy all for the glory of God. You are not a failure for needing sleep. Let me say that one more time. You are not a failure for needing sleep or for taking a nap or for being sick or for being tired at the end of the day, for not being able to go, go, go. You are not a failure. You are a human being with limits. And God declares that being a human being is very good. That's how God designed you. So you have permission to rest. Number four, reminder, you are not the only one. You're not the only one. I mean that in a good way. You're not the only one. Sometimes you feel like we're the only one struggling. Everyone else is doing awesome. And certainly if you scroll on Instagram, you're going to see that everybody's doing awesome because people don't post the pictures of their failures most of the time. And as you scroll and see everybody's success, you might lead to even more shame. But remember, you are not the only one struggling. Everyone else around you is struggling in some way. We all are limited. Maybe some people can run faster than others, but everybody gets tired eventually. And they're weak like you, maybe even weaker than you think. They're all going through dark and difficult things, some of them you don't even know about. So just assume that people around you are also struggling. Remember to treat others with compassion, the same compassion that you need, because take heart, you are not the only one. Remember, you're not the only one. Fifth encouraging reminder, you can ask for help. You can ask for help. It is one of the hardest things to do in our achievement culture, but you really can ask for help. It's okay. You can ask specifically for the help that you need. You can ask for prayer. You can ask for a ride. You can ask for money. You can ask for encouragement. You can ask for tutoring. You can ask for wisdom. You can ask for food. You can ask for an extension from your professor. You can ask to back out of a commitment or not come to that thing you said you would come to. People often are willing to help you if they know your need, Um, but they, they can't help you unless they know what it is. And consider this. What if your weakness... And, and the way that you need help from other people, what if that's not so much about, about you, but actually is, is a way that God has ordained in their lives an opportunity to obey the commands of Scripture, to love one another, to carry the burdens of other people? What if, what if they have an opportunity to be generous to you because you're the one in need? 
We often like to be the person that, that gives and the strong person that helps the people that are weak. But what if, what if you're assigned the role in the, in the play to be the weak one, to give other people the opportunity to be able to obey the commands of God to serve you? That's a massive mindset shift. But remember, you can ask for help. Number six, encouraging reminder, you're allowed to laugh. You are allowed to laugh about your weakness. You're allowed to, to exhale to smile, to take yourself a little less seriously. Um, David Zoll in his book, Low Anthropology, says, laughing at our absurdities may not solve our problems, but it certainly takes the edge off. And let me give you an example. And just think with me here how, how hilarious this is. Think about sleep, okay? When I, when I do a day, at the end of that day, I don't know if you guys like this, but at the end of the day, I get so flat out exhausted by the energy expenditure of that day that I need to lay down, not just sit down, but lay down on a bed for hours and hours and hours, completely unconscious, just because I'm flat out exhausted of just living for a day. And I do this every day. One third of my life is spent lying in bed, doing nothing. That's funny. (laughs) That's really funny. Like, just being alive and awake is so utterly exhausting that I need a third of my life to recover just just to get enough energy to do another 16 hours of that. That's funny. That's hilarious. So remember, you are allowed to laugh because we really are laughably limited as human beings. So remember those six encouragements. God has saved you. God cares for you. You have permission to rest. You're not the only one. You can ask for help, and you're allowed to laugh. One last encouragement before we conclude. Uh, if you look at the bottom left of, your, of page 41, there's a QR code there. If you want more on this, uh, there is, is lots of resources there, videos, podcasts, articles, books, just to help remind you of these encouragements. And to, you know, if you want to, just dive a little bit deeper into these topics. And if you want to dive in deeper right now, I have have three books that I want to recommend and I'm going to give them away. Uh, The first one is called A Spacious Life by Ashley Hales, Trading Hustle and Hurry for the Goodness of Limits. Who would like this book? Just raise your hand. There we go. Awesome. Okay, the next one uh, is one I just quoted, Low Anthropology by David Zoll, The Unlikely Key to a Gracious View of Others and Yourself. It's the one where he talks about it's, it's good to laugh. Oh, I saw that hand back there first. There we go. And then the, uh, the last one, it's a fantastic book called You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect, I see that hand, Limits Reflect <laughs> God's Design and Why That's Good News by Kelly Capick. Fantastic book. You're Only Human. Okay, let me end with a glorious scripture here from Hebrews 4, 14 and 16, just to, to let the last thing in our minds be a, a picture of Jesus. Listen to this description of him. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. God, we give you the praise that... This verse says, when we draw near to your throne, it is a throne of grace that you are ready, willing, you kind of have the the box open and ready to shovel out all the grace and the help that we need.
Thank you, God, that that is your disposition towards us and that you are full of grace and mercy. Lord, help us to believe that and therefore be willing to admit our weakness in order to receive the help that we need. Help us, Lord, to come boldly to your throne of grace often, often, often to get the grace that we need in the midst of our weakness and limits. Lord, please teach us the glorious good news of the gospel. We pray it all in the name of Christ. Amen.